0: Retirement spitball analyses today on Your Money, Your Wealth podcast number 372 with a spitball for a police officer turning teacher, a self-employed small business owner, an early retiree with an employee stock ownership plan who wants to do Roth conversions and withdraw five or six percent in retirement, and a pension and social security spitball analysis. Plus, how many months of expenses should you save in your emergency fund? Also, you may know where Rick Edelman and Dave Ramsey stand on 15 versus 30-year mortgages and using cash versus credit, but what does YMYW think? Visit YourMoneyYourWealth.com and click Ask Joe and Big Al on air to send in your money questions as an email or a priority voice message. I'm producer Andy Last, and here are the hosts of Your Money, Your Wealth, filling in for Joe Anderson, Kyle Stacy, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA.
1: So uh, Andy, we have Tim from Holliston, Massachusetts.
0: You got it. He says, hello again, Joe, Big Al, and Andy. First, thank you for answering my question back in the show 324 regarding a taxable brokerage account versus a 457B deferred comp plan. A brief summary about us. I'm a police officer, 38. My wife, who is 30, works in finance and investing as a data steward. Our gross annual income is roughly $240,000 a year between our two incomes and non-taxable VA disability. He's an Iraq war veteran. Thank you very much, Tim. Our previously mentioned tax-free gift from my in-laws is now going into an eyelet rather than an annual gift directly to us. My wife is maxing out her Roth 401k through her employer, and we backdoor the maximum into each of our Roth IRAs. I have a pension through the police department that will pay 50% at age 55, which is when I plan on stepping away from policing, but not retiring entirely. I have a master's in education and was previously a high school teacher looking to combine both teaching and experience in law enforcement to teach at a police academy as the years and mileage on my body increase now to get to my question. That made me think of the movie Police Academy. I hope that's not what Tim ends up doing. My (laughs) wife and I recently purchased a home in May of 2021 with 20% down and a fixed 30-year loan of $520,000 at 2.99%. Taking into consideration my age, being a disabled vet, and my job carrying a higher rate of injury, my wife and I are looking to have the ability to pay off the house in 15 years while taking advantage of historically low mortgage rates. We're using our brokerage account as our early mortgage payoff account, contributing $250 a week into four indexed ETFs, broad, value, mid-cap, and small-cap, with a 40-20-20-20 allocation, respectively. Given a 7% annual expected rate of growth, the balance of this brokerage account should grow to match the principal balance remaining at the 15-year mark of the mortgage amortization. I'm not suggesting cashing out the brokerage account at that time and dealing with a large tax bill just to pay off a low-rate mortgage, but rather have the peace of mind to know that if a scenario were to happen where I can no longer work, the balance on our home would not cause a crisis event. My thoughts right,
1: are to Let's look up there because um, I think let's address that and then I think he's got a few more questions. So I, I think the idea, Tim, is, is so you're, you're thinking of uh, retiring at age 55, you're 38, you, you, you're gonna set up a, a savings account or I should say an investment account outside of your retirement account that will grow at a 7% rate of return, sufficient enough to pay off your mortgage should you decide to, which is not a bad idea at all. fact, no. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, debt free. Yeah, and so and you're continuing paying the mortgage as a 30 year, which is fine. Some, some people decide to go ahead and pay more on the mortgage each month or turn it into a 15 year, that's obviously an advantage too. But as you've already mentioned, the loan rate's 2.99%, which is a good rate relative to what you could earn potentially with investments, and, and you're targeting 7%, which may or may not happen. So here, here's the the pluses and minuses in that versus just turning this into a 15-year uh, mortgage uh, by paying more each month if you want to. And, and the, the main disadvantage is the risk. There's no guarantee that it's going to go up 7% per year annualized for the next 17 years.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I I guess the other part um, is, uh, I mean, just thinking about the market, the market's done rather well the last 12 years. And so will it continue at this rate? Hard to say, a a lot of experts don't necessarily think so. But if you look at the areas of the market that have done exceptionally well, well, in the last decade, it's mostly in the US. International stocks have not done as well. Emerging market stocks, which are companies in countries that are emerging like India, Brazil, to name a couple, uh, they have not done as well. And there's something called reversion to the mean where these, these different asset classes, foreign asset classes will probably at some point outperform. So looking at your allocation, I like the idea that it's all stock, but I think you're missing out on international and emerging markets. And I probably, if it were me at your age, I probably would have at least 30% of my portfolio in international emerging markets. You could do more, you could do less. 20 to 50, you know, would be reasonable.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I mean, emerging markets, those are so especially for someone so young, those uh, that asset class tends to be pretty volatile, but you're compensated with that, right? With a higher rate of return over time.
1: Right. But anyway, so you might think about your allocation. The concept is fine. And I also agree with you in 15 years from, or 17 years from now, uh, having the ability to pay off the mortgage is, is great. You may not want to, because if you truly do earn 7% rate of return, you might want to keep that going. And then you got a mortgage that's, that's 3% roughly. Mm-hmm. So you've got that arbitrage. Again, though, it's the risk, right? Right. We don't really know what the market's going to do. So think about that. So I guess with that, Andy, go ahead and continue.
0: All right. So he continues. My thoughts are to slowly tax gain harvest those long-term gains 15 to 17 years from now as I step away from policing and have a reduction in my income. I also like that this money can be utilized as a second emergency fund aside from cash in our savings rather than having to take out a HELOC and pay the bank to essentially borrow our own money. I'm sure there is more info you could always use in these sorts of questions and conversations, but does this plan seem feasible considering our low mortgage rate and average annual returns of the market? Are there any potential issues I'm missing aside from gradually shifting our investing to include a tax free bond slash fixed income ETFs to reduce the risk of over risk over time? Should our allocation be different right now, given a 15 to 17 year window of growth? By the way, we have our first child on the way. He's due on Easter Sunday. Congratulations. Uh, I have a question regarding the Utma versus 529 and all the facets surrounding that decision but i'll save that for a later show the three of you keep me smiling laughing and informed as i stand in the cold new england weather on a police detail thank you for all you do been sharing the ymyw podcast with my co-workers wow that's cool thank you tim
1: yes thank you tim so we kind of already touched on the the uh having kind of a sinking fund to pay off that mortgage we're, we're good with that we think that's a good idea only, only disadvantage potentially, or is the risk in the market what at what is actually going to happen? Uh, the second point about uh, an emergency fund, uh, I love that too because I mean, when you think about an emergency fund, I, I would say you probably want three to six months in cash, just available in cash. But I, I really would encourage most of you to have more than that and. Anything above that can potentially be invested. I mean, it's not necessarily an emergency fund per se, but investments, uh, liquid investments can be converted to cash within a couple of days, and, and that's not a bad way to go.
2: Yeah, I would, I would say with the emergency fund, you almost have to just know yourself a little bit, understand that you you might want some of that emergency cash just a little bit tougher to access, kind of like have a lid or a, a lock on the cookie jar, so to speak, right? So it's not so easy just to sweep it into the checking account. <laughs> yeah, you mean like have a CD or something like that? Yeah, maybe up. a CD or something that's a little bit more, a little bit more of a, a pain to try to access. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, I think you're right when you said it depends upon the person
1: and the discipline because- A lot of people that try to set up an emergency fund, an emergency happens every week. It it doesn't last very long. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So at any rate, um, yeah, no, I think the plan is fine. I think we talked like we talked about. I think you could potentially uh, reallocate uh, to include international. I like the plan. I also like the idea of not necessarily paying off the mortgage in 15 to
2: 17 years, but at least you've got that option. Yeah. The, the other thing too, he mentioned tax gain harvesting, um, you know, someone so young with such a long time horizon, he might be able to tax loss harvest over the next 10, 15 years, and he could potentially build up a pretty large capital loss carry forward, instead of having to pay a gain to pay off the mortgage, he might have some capital losses to offset any sort of gains. And then he can free up the cash without having to worry about the, the taxes.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Tax loss harvesting is when you have an asset class that goes down, you sell it, you record a loss on your tax return. That loss is available basically for the rest of your life, as well as $3,000 per year for ordinary income. So mm-hmm. that that can be a good way to go. So, Tim, great question.
0: Mike has a retirement spitball question. He says, hello guys, I'm 49 and have worked for a convenience store chain for 30 years in New York. They have an ESOP that matches 12% of our salary as a contribution. It doesn't allow us to add any funds to it. Over the years, the average appreciation is about 15%. Two years ago, it was over 20% and last year it was 33%. I have about 840." Thousand dollars in the plan. I would like. I, I would have more, but I lost 130000 hundred and thirty thousand about six years ago during a divorce. I make seventy thousand dollars a year. I only have about fifteen thousand from a Roth and crypto. I have seventy-five thousand left to pay off on the house. I would like to retire in six years or less. Everyone else says to diversify, but I feel like it's still a strong growing business with no debt. I would like to maintain the same income during retirement. What are your thoughts about a five or 6% withdrawal rate and a conversion to a Roth? Mike.
1: Okay. I, I get maybe even three questions here. One, <laughs> one is to diversify or not diversify, whether um, five or 6% withdrawal rate is going to work and conversion to a Roth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in in terms of diversifying or not, I would say in general, diversification is safer. It's a surer bet, but in terms of making more money or losing more money, (laughs) concentration of your risk Mm -hmm. is is better. Now, the fact that this company has done rather well the last several years, and you have a good feeling that it's going to continue, I might just let that ride personally but there's a risk. If the yeah. company turns around, you're going to see that, that the wealth that you have there, it could go. It could not totally evaporate, but it could go down a lot more than the market as a whole. So that's, those, those are the pros and cons. But I think if you're in a company that's doing well, that has done well, you think it's going to continue to do well, I'm okay with a little concentration there.
2: Yeah. You just got to understand the range of outcomes here, right? I mean, you've got, it sounds like a pretty high upside and then, you know, we don't know what the relative downside is. He's probably got more information about the company's work there. He's been there. He's seen the people. It could be a pretty good spot for him.
0: Yeah. So he said he would like to maintain the same income during retirement. And what are your thoughts about a five or 6% withdrawal rate? And what are your thoughts on a conversion to a Roth?
1: Yeah. And so Mike is, uh, is 49. Did he say when he's going to retire?
0: Uh, He said he would like to retire in less than six years.
1: Less than six years. Okay, cool. So that means you're probably going to retire around age 55. Kyle, what do you think about withdrawal rates at age 55?
2: It seems a little high, but I mean, it sounds like he's got, you know, some sort of guaranteed rate of return here of 15%. So he could double it if he wanted, I guess. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs>
1: if he was talking about his ESOP, uh, which is an employee stock ownership plan in a company, with, which generally is in a retirement account. I guess not always, but that's, that's where I've seen it. Mm-hmm. And the company's done rather well. And I think we kind of tackled whether he should diversify or, or stay concentrated and, my, my feeling is if you're bullish on the company uh, and you're going to retire within a few years, maybe you want to stay concentrated. Maybe, maybe you diversify some, but you generally stay concentrated so you can enjoy the wealth. But the risk, of course, is, is it could go down. Yeah. You could lose a lot of money. So that, that's always the risk there. But then if you want to retire at 55 and you want a 5 or 6% withdrawal rate, you probably have heard us talk about the four percent withdrawal rate, um, mm-hmm. uh, the distribution rate, which is designed uh, for a, a couple or individual at age sixty-five. That's where this came about thirty plus years ago, um,
2: and interest rates were a little higher then
1: they were. And even four percent is is suspect given mm-hmm. given the interest rates, you know, rates of return on fixed income. Uh, five or 6% is awfully high. I would say you could probably do 5% if you're 70 years old or 75. Mm-hmm. If you're late seventies, you could probably do 6%, but not at 55. That, that's, that's going to put way too much, um, uh, strain on your portfolio. So I would say at 55, uh, probably a better number. Is at 3% distribution yeah. rate?
2: Maybe even two or you yeah, have two to three is probably where he wants to be.
1: Agreed. I, I think three might be as high as you want to go.
2: hmm yeah. And I mean, there's a ton of other factors in there too, right? I mean, how, you know, how's his health? Does he think he's got, you know, 30, 40 years to live? And then you can kind of gradually increase the uh, distribution rate over time.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a good point. So, I mean, if, if you're single and you, you have impaired life expectancy, you might want to live it up a little mm-hmm. bit more. Right. And I, I'm okay with that. Yep. But there's a risk there. Mm-hmm. And that is what if you live a lot longer than you thought? Right?
2: Yeah. I mean, planning would be a lot easier if we all knew our uh, mortality.
1: <laughs> yeah. Which we don't really get that, do we?
2: Yeah. Would you want to know? No. Yeah, I don't know. Not I don't really. think so either. <laughs> Unless it's a big
1: number. Yeah. But even still, when you approach that, it's like, oh, OK. Yeah. <laughs> this huh. is my last holiday. Right. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So I, don't, I don't know what I would want to do with that information. Right. Right. OK. So, second question was uh, should he consider a conversion to a Roth IRA? How would you answer that one, Kyle?
2: Uh, I mean, if he's still working, it depends on what his, his bracket is. I mean, it, it also sounds like this ESOP's done pretty well. If it's going to continue to grow, he might end up with a two or $3 million balance, right? And then if he's only spending, what is he spending? 75,000? Right. Right. I mean, his RMD alone on that, you know, presuming it's in a retirement account might be 120,000 bucks by yeah. the time he gets there. And if he's pulling, it's, it's, it's going to depend on the distribution rate, right? How much it actually grows. But if you look like traditionally, if he's going to have a sustainable distribution rate, maybe that two to three percent, and he's pulling uh, or it's growing at four, five, or six, right? That little delta is going to continue to grow the account until he gets to the RMD age. Yeah. By By the way, when we talk about a distribution rate, in this case, we're
1: saying two or three percent. If you're sixty five, maybe four percent. At seventy, maybe five percent. These are absolute rules of thumb. Don't, oh yeah! Please do not take this to the bank. This is <laughs> this is kind of a starting point to, to do financial planning to figure out if that's the right number for you. Uh, and there's a lot of factors here that you just mentioned one, which is impaired life expectancy. You can do a higher mm-hmm. distribution rate. Your, your investment strategy, if you're 100% in CDs and cash, you better do really low distribution yeah. rate because mm-hmm. you want your earnings and growth to be higher than the distribution rate. And the reason is because of inflation. In other words, you want your account to grow. So if you're taking 4% out or 3% out, whatever it is, it's a higher number each year because inflation keeps on going yeah. each and every year.
2: Yeah. I mean, kind of like the the back of the envelope would be maybe or spitball, right? And it would be maybe 4% is what you're pulling, but if it's growing at six or seven, that that delta of, of two or three is there, like you said, to combat tax, yeah, inflation, yeah. one-off expenses.
1: Now, in terms of a conversion, Mike, we don't have near enough information um, right. because, we, as Kyle said, we don't know what your salary is. We don't know what your tax bracket is. We don't know what it's going to look like upon retire, by, retirement. However,
0: actually, he does retire. tell us that he makes $70,000 a year. That's, we, so we have his income, but, I, but a lot of the other information we still need.
1: Yeah, we, we still need. But I would suggest that 75,000, you're gonna be in the 22% bracket. It just just depends upon what this ESOP plan, which is probably a retirement plan is Mm -hmm. gonna grow to, what your future required minimum distributions are going to be. Um, But I I think the the general rule, I, I guess, would be when you retire at age 55, if in fact your income is a little bit lower, maybe that's a better time to do it. On the other hand, tax rates uh, are lower now than they will be come 2026. Mm-hmm. So that might put it in favor of doing conversions right now, but you got to do some calculations here. You got to figure out that the, the the tax rate you're in now versus the tax rate you're going to be in the future, what your retirement account is going to grow to. So you can look at what your required minimum distributions are, and then you could sensibly come up with the, with the answer. And, and I will tell you this being a CPA When you go to your accountant, I I would say the majority of accountants would tell you not to do a Roth conversion. And the reason is because they're looking at one year at a time. Mm -hmm. In other words, if if they're trying to save you taxes for the year they're doing, why would they want you to do a Roth conversion? Because you're going to pay more taxes. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when you start looking at 20, 30 years of tax returns, future tax returns all at once, you might make a completely different decision. For example, if you're in a low bracket now versus what you're going to be in, in the future, then you would want to do a Roth conversion now, even though it's going to cause more tax right now. So that's it, it, it's a hard question to answer without enough information. And even with more information, you would need to run tax projections. Right. And not just a tax projection for this year, but tax projections for future years given what we know on what tax brackets are going to be and then of course it's probably going to all be wrong anyway because tax (laughs) rates change all the time and so it's hard to to know with certainty anyway mike I, i hope that helps a little bit
0: So get this, 21% of Americans have no emergency savings, 4 out of 5 parents wish that they learned more about money as a kid, and 59% of parents are uncomfortable talking to their kids about money. This might be why 32% of teens can't identify the difference between a credit card and a debit card, and 46% of teens don't know what a 401k is. That's all according to the Choose FI Foundation. April is Financial Literacy Month, an effort to highlight the need for more financial education for both adults, and kids. These stats are why it's so important to have basic financial skills like managing money, budgeting, and investing. Visit the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to watch brand new videos on financial literacy and to download our guide to cracking the financial code at any age. It's got financial strategies and actions to take in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s to overcome any previous missteps and to set yourself up for a more successful retirement. Just click the link in the description of today's episode in your podcast app to go to the show notes, access all these free financial literacy resources, and don't forget to share them to celebrate Financial Literacy Month.
1: Uh, Andy, we've got a question from Heather.
0: We do. She says, hi, Andy, Big Al, and Joe. I appreciate you taking the time to read my questions and possibly do some spitballing. Uh, I discovered your podcast last year, and now I'm hooked. I've been a listener to some older episodes, and in the process, I think you have saved me from making a tax mistake for 2021. So thank you. It might be time for a new CPA. I'm self-employed and have always had a SEP IRA. A few years ago, I figured out I was getting raked over the coals and fees from a CFP I was working with. Now I'm trying to manage things myself and I'm still learning. I recently discovered solo 401ks and Roth 401ks, which seem like a much better option than my SEP. Since I don't have employees, I called my CPA to confirm I could contribute both a SEP and solo 401k for 2021. And he said I could. After listening to podcast 344, I started trying to figure out how to do the mega backdoor Roth, the Megatron, especially since you discussed taking advantage of the current QBI deduction. In my research, I discovered that my CPA might be incorrect and that I'm not able to have both solo 401k and 5305 SEP.
1: I'll chime in there. Your CPA was wrong. Uh, You cannot have a SEP IRA and a solo 401k in the same year, right? To do a SEP IRA, it has to be your only pension plan, Mm -hmm. right? So that one's easy. So what else do we got? Uh,
0: As a result of this discovery, I now have a ton of questions. If you could spitball some of this stuff I'm trying to figure out, it would make me so happy. I would like to do the Megatron backdoor Roth for 2021, if possible. If not, I'd like to for 2022. My account provider Etrade offers both solo 401k and Roth 401k. They changed their solo 401k plan in 2021 to offer non-deductible employee contributions. I've already contributed 19 and a half thousand to the Roth 401k for 2021, which I believe is the employee side. Would I need some kind of TPA or other additional plan documents in order to megatron on the solo side? My CPA said that since I'm self-employed that I don't, but I'm not feeling confident that he knows what he's doing. I set up the account in 2021, but didn't submit their updated paperwork to take advantage of the after-tax option until a couple of weeks ago. Would that be an issue? If I'm allowed to do it, so it looks like those would be entirely employee contributions instead of employer.
1: All right, we'll stop there. <laughs> There's a lot wow. there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I will say this, Uh, the the rules used to be you had to set up a 401k, solo 401k, safe harbor, regular 401k by December 31st of the tax year that you're in. And with the SECURE Act, it was changed slightly. You could actually now set up the the 401k after the fact, actually all the way to the due date of of the business returns, which would be October 15th if you're sole proprietor and you don't have an entity. However, uh, that's only good for the employer contributions. The employee contributions require you to have set up the plan before or by December 31st. And you have to basically elect that you can do deferrals, which is part of a normal plan anyway. Mm -hmm. So nothing special there. So you would be, um, Heather, you'd be out elect for a, a solo 401k with the employee portion which would include the 19,500 that you can contribute as well as you wouldn't be able to do the after-tax money because that's that's an employee contribution. So you couldn't do that for 2021. You could make the employer contribution, which is 25% of your profits, which by the way, is the same as the SEP IRA. So if it's easier to just do the SEP IRA for 2021, because you're going to get the same deduction either mm-hmm. way, 25% of your profits, then that that would be a way to go there. But you would want to set up the 401k for 2022. So you could do those employee contributions.
2: Yeah, it looks like she she did do the contribution for 2021. I think she was more looking at like the, visit it, the employer side? I think the my thought is, I mean, all these 401ks are a little different unless you actually buy, build one out and, you know, hire a TPA to do it. Um, E-Trade is probably going to be her best bet potentially, right? Because if they have the after-tax component, I don't know if the, uh, the prototype allows for that, but most 401k plans don't even allow a Roth anymore. So, yeah, I mean, if she can do the Roth. I mean, that's, that's great.
1: Yeah, if E-Trade offers the Roth component as well as the, the, the after-tax component, mm-hmm. Um, and then, she's got the
2: cash to do it. Yeah. Then
1: that's a great way to go. And I guess maybe we should talk just briefly about the after-tax component, um, mega bath backdoor Roth or, or Megatron is what we yeah. call it sometimes on this show. W- mm-hmm. What is that Kyle?
2: Yeah, essentially some 401k plans have three components to them. There's the pre-tax portion where you're able to defer income before you pay taxes on it. There's a Roth component potentially where you, you know, you pay the taxes up front and you put the money in. But there's a third option that not many people know about, and it's after-tax or post-tax, post 80 Sometimes they call it a different stuff, but uh, essentially it's excess employee contributions. And as long as those contributions do not exceed the IRS limit, those are monies that can go into the 401k plan. You don't get a tax benefit for it today, but the good news is that a lot of times the plan will allow those after-tax contributions to be moved out of the plan into a Roth IRA. So, it's kind of like supercharging or Megalodon or you know, all these fancy names.
0: Megalodon, form. that's a new Megalodon. one. <laughs> no, that yeah, a new
2: whatever. One. Yeah. It's
1: fancy names. I like it. Yeah. Uh, so, it's it's kind of like a way to do a, a giant Roth contribution, right? Mm-hmm. In, in a sense. But of course, your plan has to allow that. Um, and, and so, whether it allows it in plan or whether it allows an in service withdrawal so you can send it to a Roth IRA, uh, that's, you know, that it would have to do that. Mm hmm. All right, Andy, why don't we continue?
0: Yep, she says, do you think it would be smart to roll a solo into a Roth 401k or Roth IRA? Is there any benefit for one over the other? If I did it over to a Roth IRA, would that help to avoid the 5500 form that needs to be filed once the account reaches 250K?
1: Um, Yeah, well, the advantage of rolling to a a Roth 401k or Roth IRA is all future growth income principle is tax-free. You do pay tax on what you convert. That's that's called a Roth conversion. Um, and uh, I, I well, I assume if you're talking about the traditional 401k, if you're talking about the money that's already in the 401k, uh, yeah, if you could roll that out to a Roth IRA and keep your total uh, account below 250,000, you could potentially avoid the annual filing of the 5,500. So that can mm-hmm. work. Yep.
0: Okay, let's do that. She continues, I file a Schedule C and my 1099 was 144K for 2021 and I have one rental property. If I had enough deductions for my MAGI to reach 125K, I was hoping to contribute $6,000 to a regular Roth IRA. I already did since I thought I could contribute pre-tax dollars to my SEP account to to help lower the MAGI, modified adjusted gross income. I may have made a mistake with my SEP account for 2019. I had opened an additional SEP account because I had a Vanguard managed account and I was trying to avoid paying more fees. Is it okay to have more than one SEP account for the same business? I can't seem to find a clear answer online. And I may have opened a third account in 2021 because I didn't enjoy the funding process with the second provider. Oops. If I did make a mistake, will I have to correct it on my 2019 and 2020 tax returns, or is that something that I could ignore and hope for the best?
1: Uh, well, let's see. I'll try to tackle that one. <laughs> it, there's no limit on the number of SEP IRA accounts you have, uh, and I guess if you funded more than one in a particular year, it would it would just you'd have to aggregate them together in terms right. of it would it could be no more than 25% of your profits. So. Mm-hmm. No, I don't see a mistake here other than that's a lot of paperwork to try a to, lot of a lot of statements. Yeah, right. <clears> try to <throat> keep track of. But no, I think you're okay.
0: Al, do you remember the question we got from somebody who had uh, opened an IRA every time they wanted to make a contribution to their yes. account, so they had I, 200 I, IRAs? I, yeah. <laughs> that's what this was starting to remind me of, but it a little was, different.
1: Yeah. Agreed.
0: She says I think I can still pull the money out that I contributed to 2021 to the SEP. Or could another option be to open a prototype SEP and roll everything into that? If not, going forward, if I wanted to do a mix of pre-tax and after-tax contributions, E-Trade said that I I can have more than one solo account with the same plan name and sequence number. If I need to pay for plan documents, do you think it would be worth the cost considering the mega might not be around much longer?
2: There's a lot in that paragraph. Well, yeah, so... (laughs)
1: I'm gonna take it simply, which which is yeah, if you've already contributed for 2021 to the SEP, I, I would just keep that in there because the solo K, that's all you're gonna be able to do anyway, which is the 25% of profits, which is the same as the SEP. I would so I'd probably stick with the SEP for 2021. 2022, I I would make sure you get that 401k. In place, so you can do those employee contributions as well, so you can get a lot more in.
2: Yeah. And the other thing with the SEP, too, is you can't do Roth SEP, right? There's no Roth SEP. Nowhere else. So if she He's wants right. to do, you know, pre tax or she wants to do her Roth 401k contributions, and then, you know, the employer side is going to be the deferred, she could do that. Right.
0: And then I'll just wrap it up. She says, thanks for helping educate people like me that don't know what we're doing. It's so nice to be able to receive knowledge on both investing and tax scenarios from one source. I love the banter between y'all. It helps keep me laughing. I personally think Joe sounds more confident than arrogant. We'll make sure to convey that to him if he ever comes back. She says, I don't have any fur babies. I drive a 2015 Maserati Ghibli and enjoy drinking Moscow Mules with Tito's vodka. That's Heather in Irvine, California. Thank you, Heather.
1: Yes, thank you. There was a lot there, and, and hopefully we helped you out a bit.
0: Uh, David says, Dear Joe, Al, and Andy, my wife will have a Calsters pension of approximately $3,000 a month. My Social Security at 67 is projected to be $2,900 and about $2,000 at 62. We have $1.5 million IRA and half a million in a brokerage account. Since she will be subject to the windfall elimination provision, she will not be able to claim much of a spousal benefit. I believe she can just get the minimum $200 and the rest is lost because of WEP. In looking at the long run, I think it would be better for me to claim Social Security at 62 rather than use the IRA slash brokerage to live on, thus allowing the IRA slash brokerage to grow as much as possible in case I die before she does, because if I delay Social Security until 67 or even 70, the government pension offset will restrict her from getting much of a survivor social security benefit. Am I looking at this correctly? her pension and my social security at 62 would cover our living expenses easily we have no debts we live comfortably on forty thousand dollars a year now we both retired last year me at 60 and her at 58 we are using the brokerage account to cover expenses while we wait to turn on pension and social security we have a daily driver of a Lexus nx200 and a ford f350 dually for towing a fifth wheel we drink diet coke david thank you david
1: all right, David. We don't
0: often get people who are just uh, diet coke or milk drinkers, but it does happen occasionally.
1: Sure does, and I think that's fantastic. Yep. Um, all right, so I, I guess the question really is is referring to when David should take Social Security. There's there's something called the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offset. You want to take a crack at what those are?
2: Yeah, those are two different. Portions of uh, Social Security were essentially people who do not pay into Social Security, but have a pension. Um, But if they have worked in a previous job where they did pay into Social Security, they may have a benefit. But the idea is they don't want you to double dip, right? They don't want you getting Social Security and a pension in which that you, you know, to get more income. So with windfall elimination, you will actually reduce your Social Security benefit if you are eligible to take one. So I think the maximum is like $440 or something a month. Uh, whereas with government offset provision or GPO, uh, that's more around like if you inherit a pension, like a survivor benefit or something, and you are already receiving a pension. Again, you can't double dip. So they, there's a formula. I think it's like two-thirds of the benefit. Uh, if two-thirds of Social Security is greater or the pension is greater, it's some weird convoluted it, calculation
1: it, it's it's <laughs> it's very complicated not mm-hmm. how they compute it and and I would say from at least from what I know it, it sounds like it's an egregious um, provision but it's actually meant there to be fair so that mm-hmm. people don't double dip and and I, I think the way that they compute it actually does make a certain amount of sense but the point is if you have a government pension, and you had a job where you paid into social security, you're not going to get all your social security benefit, right? So that, yep. that's the problem. And, and then if you pass away, uh, your spouse, if, if he or she has a government pension, then that's when the government pension offset comes in, where as a survivor, you don't receive the full benefit either. Right. So, so I think the question about, should you take it at 62 versus 67 or 70 uh, I, with, without without running a social security analysis, which I think will give you a more definitive answer. I, I think, I think your thinking is correct, David, because the, the reason why you would wait to take the, the, the greater benefit, right. Is, is, is for you receiving a greater benefit uh, and your spouse receiving a greater benefit, and it seems you, you'll both be subject to these provisions where you wouldn't receive that greater benefit. So then maybe, maybe you think about it, taking it earlier. What, what do you think, Kyle?
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, every, in a perfect world, everyone would love to delay it as long as they can. But sometimes that's just not the reality. Um, you know, you know, just kind of play devil's advocate, it might make sense for him to actually try and delay it, because it sounds like if he's got $2,000, he can take at 62. He's got looks like 2 million liquid, he might be able to bridge the gap.
1: Well, he he can bridge the
2: gap, but he's, he's
1: wondering whether he should, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe another way to think about it is um, if, if your spouse has a, has a much longer life expectancy than you, then it, then it probably doesn't make sense to delay it, take Mm -hmm. it earlier. However, if it's reversed, if it's, if you believe you're going to be receiving the benefit and your spouse isn't, then you, then you go back to the, the break-even calculations of, around age 80 maybe mm-hmm. think about it that way
2: yeah no i would agree with that
1: we have this thing called a social security analyzer i'm going to make this offer andy for anyone listening that would like us to run their social security analyzer email us and you can tell them how and, and we'll run that for you at, at no cost
0: The email address is info at purefinancial.com. Super easy to remember. Info, I-N-F-O at purefinancial.com for your social security analyzer.
1: To give you an idea, and I'm in the business, I have uh, our planning department run it for me. Mm -hmm. It's just too complicated to try to think because there's so many, it's so complicated. Depending upon, you know, the books you read or the people you listen to, there's like 568 combinations of ways to take social security. And it's like, how do you know which one to do? It's it's very difficult.
2: Yeah, and then you start getting into the realm. Sometimes you can even pay it back and pay back the benefit you got if you did it within a year and you know sometimes people didn't know that right there's all kinds of different weird esoteric ways of claiming social security and now the the rules changed i believe it was at
1: the end of 2015 where we have these new deeming rules Mm -hmm. and the old restricted applications and file and suspend you can't do that anymore unless you were born before january 1st uh, 1954, 1954 right? i yeah. think yeah mm-hmm. yeah so there there was grandfathering in but anyway it's complicated if you want we will run that analysis for you no charge and uh would you say info at purefinancial.com
0: yep you can email info at purefinancial.com or you can also call 888-994-6257
1: james from detroit michigan
0: yes and james says hello click and clack brothers just kidding Longtime listener and first time asking a question for someone who is retired, currently 53, retired at age 48. Congratulations, James. With a predictable income, withdraw from 72T and rental income, what is the ideal emergency cash reserve in months? The biggest risk for cash reserve is unemployment, and that is not a factor. I understand that there are other factors to consider, medical car and home repairs and other events. By the way, I drive a 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness, traded a 2014 vehicle about a year ago. This resulted in $16 of monthly depreciation for the time that I own the car. What a strange world we live in. Keep up the great work. Best regards, James. Thank you, James.
1: Yeah, thank you. So, well, good for you. So you bought a car and it basically only cost you $16 bucks a month. I mean, that that's pretty good. <laughs> what a world. <laughs> Well, let's see. So your question is about emergency funds and I would say my quick answer is anywhere between 3 months and 2 years, which isn't very helpful because <laughs> but there's variables to consider in that. And and I think part of it is the stability of your income, right? And and um what, you know, what, what your needs might be. So, so for example, uh, one extreme would be husband and wife are retired. They've got great government pensions that cover more than they would ever want to spend. Okay. You're, you're fine with three months. I'm, I'm right. fine with that. Mm-hmm. Then you've got a independent contractor that works in the construction trade jobs are plentiful. Then they're not, they're plentiful. Then they're not, uh, you might need a year or two right? Given potential recessions and, and housing booms and busts. So that those are kind of a couple different extremes. I think James, in your case, you're talking about a, a predictable income, but I, I might question that a little bit because your two sources of, of predictable income are can be variable. So 72T election is based upon your IRA balance, which can fluctuate and rental income that can fluctuate a lot, yeah, depending, vacancies or something. depending upon vacancies mm-hmm. and repairs. But Kyle, why don't you start with the 72T? What is that and and how does that work?
2: Yeah, essentially 72T is a way for people who retire prior to 59 and a half to get access to cash in their retirement account. And these can be set up a bunch of different ways, but essentially it's either five years or the longer of 59 and a half. So um, it's a way to get, you know, sort of fixed income. It's not as simple as just allocating the cash, it with what you think you're going to need over those five, six, seven years, there's a lot of formulas, um, you know, actuarial tables that need to be going into it, but that money's invested, right? And, and so like, if he gets a, a bad market and that portfolio is not set up appropriately and he doesn't have an emergency fund, right? The, the 72 t might not work out.
1: Yeah. So, so uh, for those that want to retire before 59 and a half, of course, you have to pay taxes on the money with you withdraw, but you don't have to pay that early withdrawal penalty, which, which is 10% federal um, in California. Which I know you're in Michigan. In California, there's another two and a half percent penalty on on top of that. I'm not sure about Michigan. So the 72T uh, basically gets gets you out of the penalty, which, which is totally cool. But if you're if it's invested and your accounts fluctuate, you could have more or less depending upon what the market's doing. And remember, we've just had an 11, 12 year bull run. It's a little bit volatile right now. What will the next five, 10 years, you know, hard I'll hold to, for you. Hard to say, mm-hmm. hard to say. We, we just don't know. So that may not be as, as predictable as you would think. And then rental income, that can be all over the place. And I, oh, can, yeah. I can say that from experience because <laughs> I've had rentals since... Uh, uh, let's see, 1986. Rental property income is not necessarily stable. So so, James, I'm I'm gonna just spitball here. Based upon what you told me, I, I would say you're gonna need a minimum of six months, maybe even a year. That that would be my suggestion.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good number. And I mean, you might even want to keep that in cash in the portfolio. Again, just with emergency funds, I think you know you want it to be liquid, but you don't want it necessarily easily accessible in the sense that you can just swipe it from a savings to a checking account.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the other thing is the 72T election. It's not like you can just say, well, I need more money this month. You're not, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a, fixed. It's a fixed periodic payment. It's not like you're 59 and a half and you can take whatever you want, right? It's mm-hmm. a fixed periodic payment. So you're not, it's very inflexible. Yep. So with lower balances, it would be, it would be less.
0: All right. The next one is from Daniel, who is in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. He says, Dear Big Al and Joe, I love your show. I'm currently serving active duty in the USMC, United States Marine Corps. I live in the barracks on base. I was wondering what your thoughts were on a home mortgage. Dave Ramsey says a 15-year mortgage and pay pay it off sooner, whereas Rick Edelman says to have a 30-year mortgage to help save on your federal taxes and invest it. And also, what are your thoughts on having a credit score? Dave Ramsey says pay cash, and Rick Edelman says to have a credit card. Love to hear back from you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel.
1: Great question. And um, two very smart people, Dave Ramsey and Rick Edelman, have very different ideas on both of these concepts. So why don't we start with the mortgage? Kyle, why don't you take a crack at this?
2: Yeah, I I think some of this is uh, personal preference, too. But I mean, you you go to a 15-year mortgage, right? The payments is going to be a little bit larger it's not going to leave you with as much excess cash. Whereas, if you have a thirty-year mortgage, maybe the payments going to be a little bit lower. You won't get as good of a rate as the fifteen-year, but you might be a little bit more flush with cash. The challenge that we see sometimes is people don't take the extra cash and invest it. <laughs> they, right? They spend it. Yeah. I, well, that's exactly right. And
1: and so I I I think both approaches are good. To be honest, um, I um I did a fifteen-year mortgage because you know, I was getting closer to retiring and I wanted the house to be paid off if I could. And that's actually how it worked out. So that that worked out pretty good. Um, The thing about a 30-year mortgage is on paper, that's generally gonna work out better than a 15-year mortgage because in a low interest rate environment, like let's say the interest rate's 3% right now. And if you look at a globally diversified portfolio over the long-term, you could probably earn six or seven, even 8% right? So if you're paying out three and making between six and 8%, you're going to do better actually having a 30-year mortgage, which is exactly why Rick Edelman says that. Mm-hmm. The problem is, Kyle, what you just said, which is only a certain amount of people will actually save that money save and invest it. Yeah, most of us tend to spend it. If mm-hmm. there's money in the checking account, we tend to spend it. And and I would say even, um, even couples where one of the spouses is very frugal if the other one is not probably the right. non-frugal one if, if you want to stay married <laughs> yeah I mean, exactly there'll, there'll be a lot of debates and, and so <laughs> forth but when you do a 15 year mortgage it's it's a forced payment uh, it's a forced reduction of principal uh, you, you're you're going to save interest over the term you're going to lose that arbitrage arbitrage is the difference right. between what you're paying and what you're making mm-hmm. so so both answers are Fine. Both answers are good. Both answers are right, depending upon how you want to look at it. Uh, I've always had a 30-year mortgage until the last one that I got. Uh, okay. I got a 15 as I got close to retirement, and um, so that—I mean—that's what I did. So that—that's just the you know personal preference. I like the 15-year mortgage. You get a slightly better interest rate, and you get that thing paid off. You're kind of forced to pay it off sooner, right? Right. We have a lot of people that are retired and they have a 15 year and they, they want to retire but they can't afford the payments. So believe it or not, we sometimes tell people that retire get a 30 year because if they if they're house rich and cash poor, having a lower payment structure will actually help them to retire than a shorter payoff term. So oh, yeah it just depends.
2: Sure. yeah, like you said that the cash flow in retirement is really it's it's king right You want to make sure that you can manage the distributions out of whatever retirement accounts or liquidity that you have. And so making sure that that payment is affordable and it's not going to burn through the portfolio in 15 years.
1: Yeah. And the other thing we see is like someone would retire. Maybe they've got a mortgage of a one hundred thousand bucks and they have one hundred thousand dollars in their savings account and they pay it off. Mm -hmm. And then they've got no extra cash if something goes wrong with like a house repair or medical bill or car repair or whatever. And so that's not a great idea either.
2: Right. Yeah. Sometimes sleeping at well, feels good, but you also want to make sure that, you know, financially you've got a little bit of, a little bit of liquidity. Yeah.
1: Well, like you said, cash is king and and important. So what about the second question on Dave Ramsey says, pay everything in cash. Rick Edelman says, have a credit card.
2: Yeah. Kind of different flavors here. I mean, you could even probably throw in a third, third pundit too. It was like uh, Kiyosaki, right? Rich dad, poor dad. I mean, he just wants to leverage the debt and use as much debt as possible. Whereas you got Ramsey, and both are successful, right? They both right. have different strategies and ideas, but um, I kind of like the middle ground there with Edelman and kind of like the sweet spot, a little bit of both.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I would say the FICO score, and I, I like Dave Ramsey a lot. I think he's very smart and very bright. I think FICO scores are very important. And I think it's I, I think it is good to have a credit card. Here's what I would recommend though, is use the credit card, maybe get mileage, but pay it off every single month. Right, so that that's the key there. If if you if you have a credit card and you're not able to pay it off every month, then you're probably better off going to a debit card and just having it withdrawn from your checking account. Mm-hmm. Once you're done, you're done. You can't spend anymore. Mm-hmm. And and if you look at Dave Ramsey's, a, a lot of his listeners, they're they're people that have had financial difficulties, and so he's being real strong with them, saying don't use the credit cards because so many people get into trouble with them. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, it depends upon the person, it depends upon you, your, your ability to handle this appropriately. I, I like debit cards just because it forces you to use your own cash, but then you don't necessarily build up the FICO score as well.
2: Right. Yeah. The, 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 well, then the other thing too, with, with debit cards versus credit cards is sometimes if, you know, you get fraudulent charges and you use the debit card, you're kind of out of luck, right? You know, the bank's not going to give you the cash back where you have a credit card and, you know, it's traceable. You can dispute the charges every once in a while, like that comes up.
1: Yeah, it, it does come up and, and banks are different. Some banks yeah. reimburse it mm-hmm. and some some maybe a little bit less so. But uh,
2: maybe I'm talking from personal experience here. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm with you, Kyle. I've gone through the whole same <laughs> yeah. thing. Yes.
1: Yep. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, but at any rate, I I mean, I guess those are our, our thoughts. I, I think it's a good question. I think the I think the mortgage is, is based upon your own personal preference. I kind I kind of like the 15 year because it forces you to pay it off. But if you really can't afford it or you're close to retirement and you do a 15 year and then you don't have enough resources to pay that payment. That that's, that wasn't a great idea. Right. So, mm-hmm. so think about that credit card versus debit card or cash. Cash is actually the, the best way. A lot of places don't even accept cash anymore.
2: Yeah. As, after
1: COVID. Yeah, right? I was going to
2: say, it's kind of funny. You, you want to keep a little bit of cash and, and you couldn't use anything at the grocery store. No one would take it.
1: Yeah. I, I, uh, I have very little cash in my wallet. I, I use my credit card, which I pay up every month. And I, I got a prescription and it was, it was 38 cents. (laughs) You had to put it
0: on your credit card.
1: (laughs) I mean, I could have, but I don't want change of 62 Mm -hmm. cents. I mean, what am I going to do with it? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Anyway, those are our thoughts, uh, Daniel. Good question. What do we got, Andy?
0: Our final one for today is actually a comment that we received about uh, episode number 369. And so the comment is from Shweta, but she is commenting on Karen's question. Karen had said originally, I thought I was doing everything right, working to 70 and putting off Social Security until I was 70. I finally got there, applied on my 70th birthday. In reviewing my application, the Social Security reviewer realized that I was married for 30 years and divorced for over two, obviously, and turned 66 in March. I qualified for spousal benefits starting March 2018 through when I take my larger benefits at age 70. I was told that they would only do a six-month six month look back from my application dated November 2021. Don't they owe me that money? If I hadn't paid taxes for four years, they would still expect me to pay. Is there any way I can get that money? With all of the rule changes in 2015, I got totally confused. Thanks for your help. And so Al, do you want to kind of summarize how you answered that question for Karen?
1: Yes, well, I, I guess the first part is you can when you file for benefits, you can get six months and that's it. So there there's no way to go back any more than that. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. So sorry about that, Karen. That, that's just the way it works. I think we, Joe and I spent a little bit of time talking about how this is a strategy that cannot be used anymore because it, it basically was abolished in 2015. However, there was some grandfather uh, rules for those that were age 62 at that date. And, what we didn't remember off the top of our head was exactly what the date was and who qualified. So I think Shweta actually helped us out. So why don't you re- uh, read her response.
0: Yeah, that's that's where Shweta came in. She emailed me directly and she said, hi, Andy, Karen writes in regarding missing out on her sp- spousal benefits at her full retirement age of 66. Since she is now 70 and was born in 1952, she did get grandfathered into filing a restricted application. This provision did expire. However, it is still applicable to those born before January 1st, 1954. Quote, you can use a restricted application to claim a spousal benefit while letting your benefit continue to grow if you were born on or before January 1st, 1954, and if you are currently married or you are divorced and eligible for a benefit on an ex-spouse's record. Thank you, Shweta. Thank you, Shweta, for filling us in on that.
1: Yeah, that that was helpful. I mean, uh, Joe and I, of course, knew that. We just didn't have that at our fingertips at at that particular moment. But uh, so maybe to summarize, uh, I mean, there used to be this thing called file and suspend and restricted application. You want to take a stab at that, Kyle?
2: Yeah, essentially that used to be a, a cool strategy you know, pre-2015 where one spouse would be able to claim on the other spouse's benefit without the actual spouse taking their, their benefit. So you'd be able to take it and let yours just continue to grow. And then eventually you could claim yours and get more money. It was a way to kind of get a little bit more out of the system.
1: Right, and, and I think to, to be able to do that, I think you had to be full retirement age and your spouse had to be collecting Or if they weren't collecting, they would have to file and suspend, Mm -hmm. right. To basically get them into the system so that you could take your own benefit. I mean, I'm sorry, you could take the spousal benefit and let your benefit grow Mm -hmm. all all the way to age 70. So it it was a a nice benefit that, that couples did. It was taken away at the end of 2015, but it was grandfathered in. And so, uh, so in this particular case, Karen at age 70, uh, so, there's probably, and she was born in 1952. So if you were born in 1953 or even, well, I guess 53, December 31st of 53, mm-hmm. that, that was the last date that you, you could have been born and still do the strategy. So I guess the point is it's still available.
2: Very, very few people, I would imagine. Yeah. But yeah. Very few people, mm-hmm. but it is, it,
1: it is still available
2: if you were born.
1: Uh, prior to December 31st of 1953, so there's a, there's a way to go ahead and take your spousal benefits and let your benefit grow. Uh, this will be basically gone in a, another couple of years. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so. Anyway, uh, Schweda, thanks for kind of bringing that to our attention with the exact dates. Um, it uh, nowadays uh, you you still can take a spousal benefit, but you don't necessarily want to <laughs> because if you take a spousal benefit and um, the the way it works currently is there's something called a deeming rule, which means that if you're taking a spousal benefit, it's deemed that you're taking your own benefit first, right? And then if the spousal benefit is greater, then you'll get that little extra. So you will get the spousal benefit amount, but it's as, as if you're already claiming. So in other words, you're, once you start claiming, you're not delaying social security anymore and you're going to have a lower amount for life. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, just just be aware that social security is a tricky thing.
0: And if you have more questions, definitely send them in to us. Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click Ask Joe and Big Al on air. You know, at some point, we may have to change that to Ask Kyle and Big Al on air. (laughs) And and we will get those questions answered for you here on Your Money, Your Wealth. So, Kyle, what did you think of your experience on the podcast? Hey,
2: I I think I did okay.
0: (laughs) If you do do say so yourself, pat yourself uh, on the back. You know, like
1: I I think it was great to get. Great to have you. I think that the proof will be in the pudding. We'll see <laughs> the response that we get, right? That's right.
0: That's right. <laughs> anyway,
1: out of here, Kyle. It was it was fun doing it with you. It was actually fun to do it with someone other than Joe, because then I could answer questions without worrying about getting my head chopped off. So that was that was good. But uh, anyway, we're going to wrap this up here now. But uh, it was a pleasure to have you. Um, and so, and Andy, of course, having you read questions was definitely helped me a lot. It's a little different
0: that way, isn't it?
1: <laughs> I don't particularly enjoy reading the questions and then answering. Joe seems to be okay with that. But uh, anyway, appreciate everyone's help here today. And uh, for all you out there, we're going we're gonna to call it good. Uh, you've listened to another episode of Your Money, Your Wealth.
0: Visit YourMoneyYourWealth.com and click Ask Joe and Big Al on air to send us your money questions, comments, and your thoughts on Kyle's YMYW appearance. New England winter, Al's birthday, golf at Kapalua, Al's rental real estate horror story. All of that is in the derails at the end of the episode. So stick around. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Click the get an assessment button in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or call 888-994-6257 to schedule your free financial assessment or your social security analyzer at a time and date convenient for you no matter where you are in the country. Chances are one of the experienced financial professionals at Pure will be able to identify strategies to help you create a more successful retirement. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision.
1: I'm in San Diego, born and raised in San Diego, so I've never spent a winter in New England <laughs> me. Uh, either but i know people that are there and they don't particularly like it
0: (laughs) my husband is from rhode island and moved out to california specifically to get away from the weather so
1: yeah right definitely get it now here's another fun fact uh if your son is born on easter sunday that will be my birthday so we would share the same birthday Mm -hmm. so a little fun fact there we're missing joe anderson who is on his honeymoon hopefully he's having a great time I know he's uh, playing golf because he went to Maui to Kapalua. There's a couple great courses there. I know they're great courses because I was just there in January volunteering at the Century Golf Tournament, which fun tournament, great golf course. Have you ever played
2: there, Kyle? I've played Kapalua once. It was a long time ago. Yeah, great golf course. I don't think there's any any place better. Maybe maybe Pebble Beach. Yeah. but I'm biased. I just got back, so yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. A little yeah. Biased. Well, I would. Yeah, I would also imagine Joe's probably on the 19th hole right now. Yeah, very fast. <laughs> A couple of my guys.
0: Yeah, we may have trouble getting him back in the office, I think.
1: You know, yeah. I'm wondering about that too. <laughs> You and I may be doing this show for a while. We'll, oh, we'll man, have you to see. Viewership's going to plummet. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. We may get more listeners. Than viewers you here.
0: know, what's funny is that there's people who, who tell us that they wish that Joe and Al would just stick to the, the facts and the real hard financial information. And then are other people that say that they love the, the fun stuff. So I think this will be an interesting balance. We'll get a bunch of people who will say, oh, I'm so glad that Joe's not there with all of his derails and other people who are going to miss him. So it'll all well, work out for the best.
1: And, and I, I mean, people write us. Some people prefer me. Some people prefer Joe. That, that's just no, some
0: people are going to prefer Kyle.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So I think it was uh, 1989. I was in, I had a rental in Escondido in California near, near San Diego. And uh, I, I, rookie landlord mistake. I, 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 was, I tried to rent it. It was during tax season. I'm CPA. I didn't have time for this, but I did. I just went out on the weekend. I got a bunch of people out. One person really, 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 really wanted it. I didn't, I did not run a credit check. I didn't do anything. I thought, oh, this, and they go, can we just pay half the, um, you know, deposit now and half, you know, when we move in? I said, sure. Well, next thing you know, uh, I was, they were in the, you know, for 45 days before I got it picked out. I didn't get another penny. And I just put a new carpet, painted it, and sure enough, what did they do? They parked their motorcycle in the living room, got oil <laughs> all over the carpet. <laughs> wow. That is about as dumb as you can be. <laughs>